Hi, and welcome to the Desert Heights Church Weekly Message, where we study scripture together verse by verse. Let's jump in now for this week's message. I think that Saul has to be like, wait a second, whoa, 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 whoa. I was asking for directions to the seer's house, and then you kind of dumped all this stuff on me because I'm like, hey, can you tell me how to get to the seer's house? And it's, yeah, 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 come and eat with me. Your donkeys are fine, by the way, and tomorrow we're going to make you the king of Israel. It's all good. Now hurry up. Go wash your hands so that we can eat. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Verse 21, Saul replied, but I'm only from the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest tribe in Israel, and my family is the least important of all the families of that tribe. Why are you talking like this to me? So Saul typically gets a bad rap for being a bad guy, and he does become a very bad guy. But here in this text, it seems like he's genuinely surprised by this honor. Verse 22, then Samuel brought Saul and his servant. Watch what's happening. Then Samuel brought Saul and his servant into the hall. This is the place where they were worshiping, or where they were going to worship, I guess. And placed them at the head of the table, honoring them above the 30 special guests. Samuel then instructed the cook to bring Saul the finest cut of meat, the piece that had been set aside for the guest of honor. So the cook brought in the meat and placed it before Saul. Go ahead and eat it, Samuel said. I was saving it for you even before I invited these others, these 30 other people sitting at the table. Samuel, Samuel's been planning this meal and he knew that Saul was his number one guest. And then he invited all the other people and he goes outside to find Saul, who's just supposed to be there, from a whole nother region. And it all came together. It's like God has a plan, huh? That's amazing. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. Verse 25, when they came down from the place of worship and returned to town, Samuel took Saul up to the roof of the house and prepared a bed for him there. At daybreak the next morning, Samuel called to Saul, get up, it's time you were on your way. So Saul got ready and he and Samuel left the house together. When they reached the edge of town, Samuel told Saul to send his servant on ahead. After the servant was gone, Samuel said, stay here, for I have received a special message for you from God. 1 Samuel chapter 10. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil. This would have been very customary, okay? Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and he poured it over Samuel's head. It wouldn't have been a small amount. It would have been a lot, by the way. It would have gone, it would have run down into his beard and down over his clothes, his chest and his shoulders and his back. It would have, it would have drenched him pretty good. Then Samuel, I just love this picture. Then Samuel, the prophet of God, he took a flask of olive oil and he poured it over Saul's head. The picture here is so important to the New Testament. When we get to the New Testament, we'll bring this back up. He kissed Saul and said, I am doing this because the Lord has appointed you to be the ruler over Israel, his special possession. Israel, here is your first king. 
He's from a wealthy family. He's tall, dark, and handsome. He is everything that you would want and expect from a king. In the following text, Samuel will publicly proclaim Saul as the king over Israel. And for the most part, Israel is excited to have their own handsome king. And the story goes pretty well for a little while. Um, but we're going to skip ahead. Number three. Number three. The king's own Will. Now, I want you to be a little bit philosophical with me for a second. Engage your brain because we're headed a very specific direction. The king's own will. Now, being red-blooded Americans where we don't really have a king, we still have a perspective of how kings work. It makes sense to us that if you are the king, that you get whatever you want, right? I mean, that's how it is in the movies. There's no higher power than the king. Um, the king doesn't have to appeal to anybody. He just does what he wants. There is no one to challenge the will of the king unless he's married. And then there might be a little challenge there. But pretty much what you want is what you get. That's the power. That's the expectation of a king is to be all powerful. You make the rules Everyone answers to you. You kind of don't answer to anyone. We see that through the history of kings in Europe is that they kind of do whatever they want. And if they're bad, they're just bad. That's just the way it goes. Even the kings of Israel, some of them were good. Some of them were bad. Um, who holds them accountable? I'll show you who holds them accountable. Verse Sam, 1 Samuel 13. So we're skipping ahead several chapters. The king's own will. King has a will. He's going to do what he wants to do. Saul was 30 years old. Uh, I was going to say it very wise just to be snarky, but that's not what the text says, so I'll stick to the text. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 42 years. Saul selected 3,000 special troops from the army of Israel, and he sent the rest of the men home. So you have a whole army of Israel. We don't know exactly how many people. He takes 3,000 special troops out of, of the army of Israel, sends everybody else home. He takes 2,000 of the chosen men with him to Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. The other 1,000 went with Saul's son, Jonathan, to Gibeah in the land of Benjamin. Okay, so we divided the 3,000 soldier army up in two. This is the special forces, 2,000 with Saul, 1,000 with Jonathan. Soon after this, Jonathan attacked and defeated the garrison of Philistines at, Gibeah, at Geba. The news spread quickly among the Philistines. So Saul blew the ram's horn throughout the land saying, Hebrews, hear this, rise up and revolt. All Israel heard the news that Saul had destroyed the Philistine garrison at Geba and, and that and that the Philistines now hated the Israelites more than ever. So the entire Israelite army was summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. Verse 5, the Philistine mustered a mighty army of 3,000 chariots. Now keep in mind, we just talked about how Saul, whenever he became king, he uh, took special forces of 3,000 soldiers from all of the armies of Israel. He has 2,000. He sent 1,000 with his son Jonathan, and he sent everybody else home. 3,000 special forces. In verse 5, the Philistines mustered a mighty army of 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and as many warriors as the grains of sand on the seashore. 
They camped at Michmash, east of Bethaven. The men of Israel saw what a tight spot they were in. And because they were hard-pressed by the enemy, they tried to hide in caves. These are the chosen people of God, the armies of Israel. These are the 3,000 special forces that uh, Saul has chosen to be his his army. These are the men that uh, saw themselves in a tight spot. They're hard-pressed by the enemy, and they tried to hide in caves, thickets, rocks, holes and cisterns. Basically, they find any hole in the ground and they hide there. Some of them crossed the river Jordan, the Jordan River, and escaped into the land of Gad and Gilgal. Meanwhile, Saul stayed at Gilgal and his men, uh, they, they escaped into the land of Gad and Gilead. I read that wrong. Meanwhile, Saul stayed at Gilgal and his men were trembling with fear bunch of brave men here. Well, there's only 3,000 of them, and, and there's thousands and thousands of the Philistines. They're in trouble. So they're trembling with fear. Verse 8, Saul waited for, watch this, Saul waited for seven days for Samuel, the prophet, as Samuel had instructed him earlier, but Samuel still didn't come. He's waited seven days Wow, that's a long time to wait for the man of God. Saul realized, Saul realized that his troops were rapidly slipping away. So he started with 3,000 and they're running. So he demanded, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Saul sacrificed the burnt offering himself. That was a no-no. Only the priest can offer the burnt offerings. Only the priest. So Saul has really messed up here. Verse 10. Just as Saul was finishing with the burnt offerings, Samuel arrived. Saul went out to meet him and welcome him. But Samuel said, what is this you have done? Saul replied, I saw my, my men scattering from me. And you didn't arrive when you said you would. And the Philistines are at Michmash ready for battle. So I said, the Philistines are ready to march against us at Gilgal. And I haven't even asked for the Lord's help. It's very justifiable. I haven't asked for the Lord's help. So I felt compelled. I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. It seems so justifiable. They would have all known what the Old Testament, the Mosaic law, the Levitical law was. They would know that only the priests offer burnt sacrifices. Everybody knew it. But Saul is king, and he needs to go to battle. And he, he needs to honor God and ask for God's help. And so, even though God's man is not there, Saul is going to take it upon himself to offer the burnt sacrifice. He says, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. You were late, Saul. I need to go to battle and we need to give God his token burnt offering. So I just took care of it myself. Verse 13. How foolish, Samuel exclaimed. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom of over Israel forever. If 
if had you kept the Lord's command, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. The implication is it's not going to last forever now. So wait a second here. You have Saul is the one who's king. Doesn't he get whatever he wants? I mean, he answers to no one, right? He he he's the king. He gets to do what he wants. Samuel, he's God's prophet. He comes along and has the audacity to show up late to the king's battle. And then he tells the king, you didn't keep God's command. So you're in trouble. Now you got to get your brain around what's going on here. You have to absorb that the king has messed up and the prophet is there to tell him that he's messed up. Israel wanted a king of their own so that they could rule their own. Now God is enforcing, like a big bully, his laws on the king. The king is subservient to God? Is that what this story is telling us? That God is... Well, I don't want to get there too quick. The king is all-powerful. He's the sovereign king. He does whatever he wants. And then... God's prophet comes along and says, no, you don't. No, you don't. You don't do whatever you want. The king will suffer consequences of disobeying the Lord. Samuel tells him very clearly, clearly, he says, you have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom is going to end relatively soon. How's that? Why is, is Saul's kingdom going to end relatively soon? Because Israel may have a king, but God is still God over all. Are you with me? You may have a king, but the the proverbial buck does not stop with the king. God is still God over all. You may have a king, but God is still God. We're going to skip ahead to verse 15. It's a very, I mean, to chapter 15 in 1 Samuel. It's a similar story, but we're coming towards the end. One day, Samuel said to Saul, It was the Lord, Samuel said to Saul, keep track of the names here. Samuel is speaking. It was the Lord who told me to anoint you as king of his people, Israel. Now listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord of heaven's army has declared. I have decided to settle accounts with the nations of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. Now go and completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation, men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. That's what the text says. So Saul, King Saul, mobilized his army at Telaim. There were 200,000 soldiers from Israel and 10,000 men from Judah. Then Saul and his army went to a, to a town of the Amalekites and lay in wait in the valley. Saul sent this warning to the Kenites. Move away from where the Amalekites live, or you will die with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites packed up and left. 
Verse 7, Then Saul slaughtered the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, east of Egypt. He captured Agog, the Amalekite king, but completely destroyed everyone else. Saul and his men spared Agog's life and kept the best of the sheep and goats, the cattle, the fat calves, and the lambs, everything, in fact, that appealed to them. They destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. Are you with me? Are you thinking? These guys were given specific instructions of what to do to kill everything. Where They were not there to make judgments about what was good or what was bad, what is salvageable and what is discardable. They were not there to make judgments. They were there to kill all of the animals. Verse 10. And all the people. Then the Lord said to Samuel, I am sorry that I ever made Saul king, for he has not been loyal to me and has refused to obey my command. Samuel was so deeply moved when he heard this that he cried out to the Lord all night. This bothers Samuel. He's upset about it. He didn't want a king in the first place, but God says, give him a king. God gave him a king. Now, now everybody's regretting it. Verse 12. Early the next morning, Samuel went to find Saul. This is not going to be a good meeting. Someone told him, Saul went to the town of Carmel to set up a monument to himself. Then he went on to Gilgal. So Saul is really feeling his Cheerios. When Samuel finally found him, Saul greeted him cheerfully. May the Lord bless you. Oh, man, I've met this person before. They just live in total sin. They see the pastor. Oh, it's so good to see you. May the Lord bless you, he said. I have carried out the Lord's command. Then what is all the bleeding of sheep and goats and the lowing of cattle I hear? Samuel demanded. It's true that the army spared the best of the sheep, goats, and cattle, Samuel, Saul admitted. But they're going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. We have destroyed everything else. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop, listen to what the Lord told me last night. What did he tell you, Saul asked. He's so innocent, he has no idea what's going on. Verse 17, and Samuel told him, although you may think little of yourself. Very telling comment. Saul thought little of himself. So he has to make a big show. He can't, a humble man is able to, uh, a man, a humble man who is confident in God can obey God. Man, you ought to write that down. That's good. A humble man who is confident in God can obey God. A humble man who is insecure about himself, he's going to have a hard time obeying God because God's going to put him in positions to do things that are way beyond himself. You have to have your trust in God to obey God. Verse 17, we sidetrack for a little bit. Samuel told him, although you may think little of yourself, are you not the leader of the tribes of Israel? 
The Lord has anointed you, King of Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and told you, go and completely destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, until they are all dead. Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul insisted. I carried out the mission he gave me. I brought back King Agag and I destroyed everyone else. Then my troops brought in the best of the sheep, goats, cattle, and plunder to sacrifice to the Lord again, your God." In Gilgal, Samuel, this is for you and this is for God. I didn't, I didn't disobey with bad intent. I disobeyed with good intent. This was for you and for the Lord of heaven's armies. I'm a good person, even though I disobeyed. Uh oh. Verse 22. But Samuel replied, What is more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings and sacrifice? Or your obedience to his voice? Church, I'm at the end here, and you have to hang on to the last part of this, because this is where it all pulls together. What we've read so far is just history getting up to this point that I believe is an important word of the Lord to God's people today, because God's church has gotten in this uh, position of justifying our disobedience. And so... I want you to listen carefully. Samuel replies to Saul, What is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice. And submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is as, the, as sinful as witchcraft and stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. It's pretty succinct. God rejected Saul as king over Israel because of his disobedience to God. Later on, Samuel is going to anoint the second king over Israel, that's a story for another day. I want to draw two applications from this text, and then I'm, I'm going to set you free, okay? Here we go. Number one, you should write this down. Number one, God is God over governments. God is God over governments. Think for just a second. Number one, two applications from this. God is God over governments. A king, a president, a congress, a government is always under the sovereign rule of God. Israel wanted a king to get away from the rule of God. And God says, I'll give you a king, but I'm still God. Our government is not independent from God. Even in America, we're not the children of Israel, but even in America, our government does not function independent from God. You with me? I say, well, Brent, it sure appears to. Well, I'm not saying that kings do not disobey and that governments don't do sinful things. They do, but they do not function independent from the power of God. Every government, it's a pretty audacious statement. Stay with me. My point is God is over governments. God is God over governments. Every government 
functions under the moral dominion of the living God. Every government functions under the moral dominion of the living God. They can make bad laws. They can make sinful laws. But God's laws still rule human behavior. They do. If you do what is good, you are blessed. If you do what is sinful and you disobey the laws of God, you'll live under a curse. That's the way it is. It doesn't really matter what the government of man does. Because the government of man is always under the dominion, the moral dominion of the living God. God makes the laws that must be obeyed even by kings and governments. They are not negotiable. You with me? God has a way of assuring that those laws are always kept. There's hope in that. There's hope in that. There is checks and balances. Um, God has a way of whenever governments get way out of control just because of the way sin and, and obedience works and the blessing of obedience. Whenever governments do, uh, whenever they live in obedience to the laws of God, there is a bless, there is blessings. Whenever we get away from the laws of God and we live in rebellion against God, then there's always this, this disaster that comes and there's a time of, of judgment and, and God has a way of straightening it back out. Every government functions under the moral dominion of the living God. There is hope in that. It does not matter how bad our government spins out of control. God is still God over the government. Number two, number two. Any of us are susceptible to a king's expectations. Number two. Any of us are susceptible to a king's expectations. The king's expectation is... I'm my own man. I'm the ruler of my own world. I can do whatever I want. I have the ability to figure it out. I have the ability to figure out what is right for my family and for me and my dominion, my kingdom. And I have the ability to figure out what is wrong for me and my family and my little kingdom. I don't need somebody else, especially from the book of Deuteronomy, telling me what is good and what is bad and what is right and what is wrong, which actions are going to be blessed and which actions are going to be cursed. I'll do my own thing because I'm my own king. The expectation of the king is he rules his own world. I'm justified in not obeying God's law because I'm the king. I'm very smart. Now, you see how any of us are susceptible to fall into the king's expectations. Typically, followers of Christ do not wake up in the morning thinking, today I'm going to rebel against God. No, we don't. We get up thinking we're going to honor God. And then when circumstances do not go as we think they should, we have to help God out. And instead of obeying God first, we seek to make circumstances right by our own perspective and our own power, just like Saul did. The prophet didn't show up on time. We got to go to war. I'm going to do something about it. So he disobeyed God. God doesn't do things that we want him to do on our time schedule. So we start slamming and jamming and making things happen that hurting people, tearing up Jack, sinning, and it's not right. It's not justifiable. We pursue our own sense of what is what we think is right. It is in our kingly thinking, in our kingly thinking, we reject God's instructions. 
and we do what we think is best. Obedience is better than sacrifice, and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft and stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. Church, we do not abuse God's grace so that we can sin. Not at all. We obey because of God's abundant grace. He has given us this fantastic forgiveness of our sins. And that is the reason that we should hold steady and live in obedience to him and not allow the frustrations or the fear of this life to cause us to sin against the life-giving God. Now, Thomas is coming back to lead in another song, and I'm hoping that you'll take these last few moments of service to search your own heart. It makes no difference if you are a king or a pawn. Every one of us submit every thought, every action, every attitude to the authority of the life-giving God because, I hope you're listening carefully, we submit every thought, every action, every attitude to the authority of the life-giving God because I promise you, you don't have anything better to submit to. And we will always have God over us to lead us and to guide us, to give us instructions. We listen and we obey because there's blessing on that. I love you guys and I hope to see you next week. God bless you. You have been listening to the Desert Heights Church Weekly Message. We meet on Sunday mornings at 1030 a.m. on Main Street in Farmington, New Mexico. If you'd like more information, please visit our website at desertheightschurch.com.